Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. And today we will be doing two weeks worth of Come Follow Me, Doctrine and Covenants 41 through 44, and Doctrine and Covenants 45. We are also members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Another really good podcast on Dialogue Podcast Network is the actual Dialogue Podcast. Be sure to check it out at dialoguejournal.com. I'll just do the summary really quick. Okay. So section 41 is revelation given to Joseph once the saints are in Ohio and about establishing the branch in Kirtland. Then moving on to section 42. Section 42 is a really big deal. The saints later called it the law that was given in Ohio, which was a promise given from the Lord that that would happen. And it shares the commandments that the saints should follow how they should treat each other and people outside of the church and just information about what they have coming for them in the future. Section 43. Oh, there were some rumors going around about leaders of the church and things that the church were doing. There were false claims is what the section calls it. And the Lord gave revelation to comfort the church through those trials. Section 43 also goes into like the second coming. Revelation, commandments, and a little bit about the temple. And then section 44 talks about the establishment of conference. Again, I'm not sure if it's like the same idea as conference that we have today, but just the idea of having conference together as saints. And then 45 goes into, oh, more information about answering questions and establishing truths in answer to false reports and foolish stories that were published and circulating to prevent people from investigating the work is what Dr. Covenant says. And section 45 is really long. It goes into the gospel, the second coming, the atonement, the millennium, and the Bible and the Book of Mormon's place in the restoration. Okay, right off the bat in section 41, in verse 1, there's an ableist metaphor, ye that hear me not, I will curse. I feel like we talk about this so often, but maybe people don't realize why that's problematic, but we want to get to other content too. So I just want to say, if you want an in-depth explanation of why ableist metaphors are bad, we do have another episode where we dive into it pretty deep, or at least we try to. And that is episode two, Visions, Validation, and Darkness. And that's talking about Joseph Smith history one, one through 24. So please check that out. If you're just kind of like, I don't see why that's a problem, then listen or read that episode. Okay. Verse five in section 41, it says, he that receiveth my law and doeth it, the same is my disciple. And he that saith he receiveth it and doeth it not, the same is not my disciple, but shall be cast out from among you. And the next verse kind of explains verse five a little bit more, but I want to focus first on verse five and then get to verse six because I want to give them both their due justice. So first of all, it's interesting that there's no gray area in verse five. You either do the law and are a disciple or you say you do it and don't 
and then you're cast out. What I thought was interesting is that it doesn't just say you either do it or you don't, which I feel like would be the obvious opposite. You either do it or you don't. But instead, it implies that the opposite of doing the law and being a disciple is saying that you will do it, but then you don't. And there's always the part of me that's like, I need more gray area. I need more nuance. I want people to be included, right? I do want to acknowledge that this verse is pretty black and white. However, you can almost see it as kind of like a parallel to white neurotypical American culture. Autistics, we say what we mean, okay? And we mean what we say for like the large part, unless we're like trying to mask and know that because of bad situations in the past, because we've been burned so many times that we're like, oh, I don't know why I shouldn't say this, or I do know why, but I don't agree with it, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut because it's not worth the hassle of these neurotypical people policing me for it, right? But we would much rather, when we unmask, we would much rather just say directly what we mean and not dance around the topic and not like imply things and then deny them afterwards. You could almost say that this verse is kind of condemning the tendency of white neurotypical Americans to promise things that they have no intention of keeping, if that makes sense. Hmm. From an autistic perspective, this verse can condemn allistic people or neurotypical people for saying things that they don't mean, um, making empty promises, and overall like confusing people who believe them on the surface value of their words. And the reason why this is so bad is because it inhibits connection. It makes it harder for people to relate to each other and to care about each other when people are just constantly erasing the meaning of their words by saying things that they don't mean. So are you connecting it to how God works? Like God, God's mind kind of works in a neurodivergent way where they say what they mean and they mean it and it's very forward and kind of takes people hmm. back sometimes. Hey, I actually didn't make that connection, but you did, which I think is cool. I was just saying that a lot of times in the scriptures, I find problematic things that are ableist. And so it's rare for me to find a scripture that I'm like, hey, I actually like agree with the substance of what this is saying from a disability or like an autistic background. Mm -hmm. And I think that that verse condemning people who make promises and then don't do them. I find that to be kind of refreshing as an autistic person. Mm -hmm. And that that could be a verse that an autistic person might find encouraging or validating for the way we communicate, you know, but I, I like the way you took it too, <laughs> that yeah. God communicates in a neurodivergent way. <laughs> Our ways are not his ways, right? <laughs> <laughs> the majority of the way. Yes. Uh, the church is led by neurotypical people and God communicates differently than how neurotypical people sometimes do. So yeah, that's an interesting um, way to look at it. Oh my gosh, but you just brought in the best interpretation of that verse ever. I always like thought that verse was so annoying, but you bringing that up now, like, mm, I love that verse now. Can we just, what verse is that? Uh, Isaiah 55, eight, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. I love this. As an autistic person, I love this. I think 
Yeah. From now on, I'm just going to say that God is autistic or at the very least neurodivergent. I just, I really love thinking of God outside of the human bodily things that we picture them in because Mm-hmm. God is so much bigger than that. And it doesn't make sense to try to put God in a box and try to understand God according to how we understand our own environment or on earth and how we interact with other people in our own bodies, how we understand our own bodies. So anything that kind of brings that more to light, that concept I really enjoy. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> wow. I thought that was beautiful, Katie. Thank you. And great teamwork <laughs> on our part. Okay. Verse six. Tell me more about verse six in section 41. Okay. It says, for it is not meet that the things which belong to the children of the kingdom should be given to them that are not worthy or to dogs or the pearls to be cast before swine. And remember, this is like a clarification of verse five, where it says, if someone says that they're going to do something, but then they don't cast them out. And if you look at other instances in scripture where it talks about don't give the food of the children to the dogs, um, you will see a pretty, I don't know if it's well-sided outside of our little like podcast network, but I feel like Beyond the Block and the Faithful Feminists talk about the Syrophoenician women all the time. So I found an article on Lijonier Ministries that is from the teachings of R.C. Sproul, who was a Calvinist slash reformed church theologian and minister. And as a disclaimer, by me quoting other Christian sources, that does not mean that I believe everything they believe, but it's just saying that this particular thing that they said is interesting. I don't know much about this particular branch of Christianity or this particular person that I'm quoting, but I still find value in what they're saying because they taught me something. Anyway, so in this article on their website, it's the faith of a Gentile woman. It explains what Jesus was saying when he was talking to the Syrophoenician woman. So in Mark 7, verse 27, Jesus said to the Syrophoenician woman, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. So context of what's happening. And this is what this article explains. Jesus was currently journeying to the region of Tyre and Sidon. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. In an attempt to get away from the ministry in Galilee for a time, but it soon became clear that no such escape was possible. And Mark 7, 24 notes that our Lord, quote, could not be hidden, meaning he wanted to just go in peace and not like talk to anybody, but people were still finding him. News of his ministry had spread far beyond the borders of the promised land into notoriously pagan areas. Again, I'm quoting right now. And the Gentiles sought him out, even though they were certainly among the least likely to do so, at least from a human perspective. And the first Gentile that Mark mentions in connection with our Lord's journey to the region of Tyre and Sidon is the Syrophoenician woman who begged Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter. In the encounter between the woman and Jesus, we see that he did not say yes to her request immediately, which I think is interesting. We normally think of Jesus healing or granting people's requests for miracles like right away, right? And we think, oh, of course, Jesus would. Why not? 
But instead, he implied that she was a, quote, dog and did not deserve the bread that belonged to the children of the household. This reflects the common view among first century Jews that the Gentiles were, quote, dogs. This article goes on to say that the Jews did not mean this positively as dogs were regarded as unclean animals. But did Jesus's use of the term dogs mean that he thought of Gentiles in the same way that most Jews of his day did? No. We have seen that Christ did not affirm the Jews' oral traditions regarding cleanness and uncleanness, Mark 7, 1 through 23. So he certainly would not have held to their traditions regarding the inherent uncleanness of Gentiles and a little bit their interpretation. Anyway, so that's the context. And what I wanted to say about that is I talked about strategic compassion before, but I didn't have like scriptures to back it up. And now I do, which makes me really excited. (laughs) Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Jesus turned away this woman because he didn't want to give her the energy that he was reserving for his ministry. He had planned out and specifically reserved his energy and his focus for the people in Tyre and Sidon. The fact that he's traveling to like a new area and he was trying to avoid people shows that he was trying to conserve his energy. So when he says that he's saving that which is holy for the children, not the dogs, he's saying he has a goal to minister to a specific set of people and he doesn't want to spend his energy on other people because then that energy will not be available for those originally intended. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And people might say, oh, well, Jesus has limitless energy. Well, then why was he trying to avoid people? You know, like we talk about Jesus as like all powerful sometimes and we forget that he was mortal too. You know what I mean? With him being mortal, he has certain limits on his body, his mind, his emotions, his energy. And so in this instance, he's using this strategic compassion. And this is the phrase I use. And maybe someone else who's a theologian or a theorist has like a better word for it, but this is what I call it. He's using this because he doesn't want to distract from his mission, be tired out by the time he gets there. But then the woman implies that she's a dog. Like she doesn't argue with him on that. She doesn't say, oh, wow, how offensive that you said that to me. She says, well, then I'm content with crumbs. I'm content with whatever you can give me. She's not pushing Jesus to give her all his energy. She's only asking him to spare whatever he thinks he can spare. Hmm. In this, we see that she calls Jesus out on his assumption of who he's supposed to minister to. And she asks him to reevaluate the borders of his strategic compassion and see if it's possible to make an exception. And Jesus is impressed by that. And he says, your daughter is healed in this moment. And I think this shows a couple of things. I think one, it shows that strategic compassion is an eternal principle, especially in the context of Jesus in the story. But I also think that it shows that there are always exceptions to rules. And we all have something to learn. Even Jesus, this woman taught Jesus something. I don't want to say she corrected him because she was very humble in this moment, but his mind was changed. And to apply this even more to our own lives, we enact this principle when we advocate for certain marginalized groups. We might have an idea of who we intend our energy and advocacy for, and it's important to conserve our energy for those people, because if we don't, then we run the risk of spreading our compassion too thin and not helping anybody or spreading our compassion, quote unquote, equally, and then people who are already privileged 
end up with more resources than they need and they can use, but people who are marginalized don't have what they need at all, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But this story of Jesus shows us sometimes situations happen that test our compassion and that call on us to expand our advocacy to include people who are at different intersections of marginalization. This woman was not a Jew, true, which because they were under Roman rule at the time, she did not have that aspect of marginalization. But she did have a daughter with a disability, and she was asking for Jesus's help in that capacity. He was able to see her like in her position of marginalization, even though it was different from his own, and expand his compassion to include her. I thought that was really cool. And to be clear, I'm not saying that we should abandon strategic compassion and include everybody because I do think that's really problematic. But I do think it's important to regularly reevaluate who we intend to advocate for and include in our advocacy and make sure that we're not abandoning people who are like desperately needing to be seen and needing their voices to be heard. Does that make sense? Yeah. I love your thoughts around that. Really quickly in verse nine of section 41, Edward Partridge is commanded to be a bishop and to leave his merchandise and to spend all his time in the labors of the church. And I laugh because I'm like, what does all his time mean? You know, like it doesn't say all your working hours, you know, and back then the working day was so much different from today. It doesn't say all your free hours outside of work. It literally just says all your time. That's just so broad. And I feel bad for him because there's no boundary between his time and the church's time, between family time and the church's time when we don't have clear-cut boundaries like this, this just adds to our guilt and our stress, especially when we're disabled and our time is so limited anyway. That's a good point. I don't want to diminish the prophet and apostles and members of the 70 devoting their entire lives in their service, but it is interesting to mention here that even the apostles and the prophet and the members of the 70 take days off. I I believe their day off is Monday every week. And then I believe they also have the month of June or maybe July off. (laughs) They have like a little bit of a summer break to be with their families or to, I don't know, just have a break from all their duties of honestly constantly running around and uh, serving people and speaking and they have meetings and they travel and they meet in the temple. So yeah, this scripture it does make it seem like it is 100% of this person's time. Maybe that was just the information that they were given and then they were told to do with that what they will. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how callings went then. I don't know when it was started that apostles and prophets had days off or a month in the summer off. But yeah, that's interesting and a really important distinction to make that we're humans. Uh (laughs) It's impossible for us to give 100% of our time. It's not really possible. And in the church, we just have really unrealistic expectations. And we experience a lot of burnout. Mm -hmm. Dr. Julie Hanks talks about this a lot in her work as a therapist and on her podcast and on her Instagram. She even says faulty spiritual equations create spiritual burnout. And then in another post, she quotes Glennon Doyle, an American author and activist who says, 
When we call martyrdom love, we teach our children that when love begins, life ends. This is why Jung suggested there is no greater burden on a child than the unlived life of a parent, which Mm. I bring this up because I've seen this in my own life with family members who've tried really, really, really hard to work, 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 and serve, 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 serve. And their personal lives end up suffering because they've never taken time to rest. I'm really passionate about encouraging people to take time to rest. And you can only do that if you have very clear boundaries about what time is for whom, what time is for church, what time is for work, what time is for family, what time is for strictly yourself. Anyway. I mean, yeah, that's really relevant to disability and neurodiversity. I don't want to demonize caregivers at all because, oh my gosh, what an important job and needed job. But there is a really difficult dynamic with disability of feeling guilty to Mm -hmm. need a caregiver, to have a caregiver, to feel like there's no way that they can love you fully because they're giving so much time for you because they're giving up so much for you that that dynamic is always kind of resting on their mind and their heart and that they uh, blame you for it. You feel like guilty for it and that, oh, that's hard. I really like that you brought in caregivers because we see this a lot of times with disabled kids' parents, especially like parents of autistic kids or of intellectually disabled kids. And sometimes those two overlap, but they like make having a disabled kid, their entire personality and identity. And like, that's really troublesome because then when your child expresses individuality, but it's not something you like, that infringes on their agency and their individuality, A, and B, it prevents you from letting them grow up and make choices for themselves. And C, when that finally happens, whether that be in this life or like in the eternities, you're going to have an extreme existential crisis and identity crisis when your child does grow up. You're going to be like, who am I now? I don't want to make light of that because that's really hard. Identity, I should know. I'm, I'm borderline, right? I, and autistic. <laughs> identity crises are hard. And I'm not saying that mental health struggles can be prevented, but I'm saying in this sense, this particular struggle can be prevented if you just like remember that you're a whole person by yourself as your disabled child is growing up. It's better for your child and it's better for yourself. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. So one thing that I wanted to make sure that we mentioned is the fact that section 42 introduces us to the concept of the law of consecration, also known as the United Order. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. And so there's this group called Solidarity, and they're a socialist, feminist, anti-racist organization. On one of their blog posts written by someone named Anna McLennan, Anna wrote, there is a distressing dearth of scholarship at the intersection of socialist theory and critical disability theory. Some critical disability scholars, but not enough, draw out the historical materialistic underpinnings of disability. Even fewer socialist theorists have examined how recognizing the relationship between capitalism and ableism increases our understanding of both. 
So basically she's saying there's not a lot of writing on this, even within like disability theory scholarship and disability theory itself is like so small. <laughs> wow. Hmm. And I'm using she, her pronouns because her name is Anna and she didn't specify if anyone knows her and wants to correct me. Anyway, it just seems pretty obvious to me, but I guess she's kind of like saying, hey, we need more people to theorize on this. So I thought maybe in the future, I would personally want to research a lot and kind of compare it to the law of consecration and to the United Order. So I thought maybe we could put that on our list of bonus episodes to do sometime instead of like trying to tackle it (laughs) in this episode. But I just wanted to make sure that we didn't forget about it because it's kind of a big deal. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. The other main thing that I want to talk about in section 42 is boundaries. And I think this is interesting because we kind of had a discussion about boundaries on our social media about like, to what extent do we allow comments that could be construed as ableist by some disabled people on our page, right? And we're still delving into that. But I think, Katie, you'd agree. We've decided that we do need boundaries. We're just exploring where to put them, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So one thing that I thought was interesting in section 42 verses 25 through 26, this is like different commandments and we're not going into all of them and the other come follow me podcasts go into them. But verses 25 and 26, it says he that has committed adultery and repents with all his heart and forsaketh it and doeth it no more thou shalt forgive. But if he doeth it again, he shall not be forgiven and shall be cast out. And I thought that was interesting because I feel like rarely we get to see like hard boundaries from the church. We rarely get to see the church model boundaries. And that's why it's so hard for us who have grown up in the church to put those boundaries in our personal lives. Regardless of whether or not I agree with that, I'm like pretty proud that there's a hard boundary there. And not only that, it like says, okay, you forgive him this time. And then you cast him out the second time. Like (laughs) it's two strikes and you're out. And I thought that I was being strict with my whole three strikes and you're out sort of thing on social media. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's interesting because Christ commands us to forgive 70 times seven, right? Yeah. To like be always ever forgiving and ever patient. But I believe this is God speaking, right? God saying, if you commit adultery and repent, you're okay. But if you commit adultery again after doing it the first time, and then you will not be forgiven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction that God sets boundaries and says like enough is enough in certain cases. I think it's interesting that it actually, it doesn't even say forgiven at the end of verse 24. It just says cast out. And this might be nitpicky, but I think that's important. It's important to remember that like inclusion in a society or in someone's life that you've hurt is not the same thing as forgiveness. Does that make sense? You can be included in someone's life or in that community and not be forgiven. And you can be excluded and forgiven, right? Like, well, this is me extrapolating, but I think it's interesting that it says that he shall be cast out. It actually doesn't even say anything about forgiveness, which leaves it up to the person whether or not to forgive. But it says that they need to be out of the community, you know, and I think that's important because if someone is not repentant and is shown they're not repentant multiple times, then keeping them in the community, regardless of whether or not God has hope for them can hurt these people who are victimized, you know, like what would happen if the adulterer was kept in the congregation 
after cheating on his wife or husband multiple times, you know, what if he was welcomed by them with open arms, his partner, his spouse would probably like withdraw into themselves and feel like really unloved and neglected and deeply wounded. I think they would feel like their hurt was not seen. Yeah. Just to clarify, it does talk about forgiveness in verse 25 and 26. True. 24 itself, thou shalt not commit adultery and he that committed adultery and repenteth not shall be cast out. Yeah. It looks like the forgiveness comes in when repentance comes in. Yeah. But then even so, there's still boundaries set if it happens again. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah, I guess my takeaway from this is not necessarily that we need to have this exact boundary, like two strikes and you're out, but just more so that like, oh, hey, there are clear boundaries in the church sometimes, and it's okay for us to have them. Yeah. And it's, we're not bad people for having clear boundaries. And I think it's so hard to not feel guilty sometimes when we're enforcing our boundaries. Yeah, 100%. <sighs> the other thing I thought was interesting was, so verses 89 through 93 in section 42, going on from boundaries, and if he or she confess not, thou shalt deliver him or her up to the church, not to the members, but to the elders, and it shall be done in a meeting, and not, and that not before the world. And if thy brother or sister offend many, he or she shall be chastened before many. And if anyone offend openly, he or she shall be rebuked openly, that he or she may be ashamed. And if he or she confess not, he or she shall be delivered up unto the law of God. If anyone shall offend in secret, he or she shall be rebuked in secret, that he or she may have opportunity to confess in secret to him or her whom he or she has offended, and to God that the church may not speak reproachfully of him or her. What do you think about this in context of our conversation about boundaries? So we've had some people comment on our social media and say things that are ableist and Sometimes they're asking questions and it's hard to determine if they're intentionally being ableist or not. Ultimately, it's up to impact and not intent anyway, right? Mm -hmm. If anyone reads it as ableist, it can be harmful to people. So the hard thing is we want our social media to be a place of education and growth and where people can ask questions. But first and foremost, we want to protect the vulnerable on our page who we are doing this ministry for, yeah. which is disabled and neurodiverse people. So yeah, this group of verses is really interesting to think about it that way when people privately message us and ask questions and they're like, hey, you posted this and I'm confused. Um, we'll answer that privately. We, we don't want to call them out. But <laughs> if they comment on a post and there's this huge thing that happens, we're going to comment back and we're going to be honest and direct. <laughs> yeah, That's cool that you caught this in the sense of the church and how the church would do that. That's really interesting. Do you think the church still does that today? This part? <laughs> I laugh because, um, no, <laughs> because of what happened recently. Because what happened? Well, I shouldn't be laughing. I laugh because it's ironic that you asked that question, but, um, Natasha Helfer is a mental health professional and she specializes in sex education. And she just was excommunicated. She had a disciplinary council on Sunday and it was a really big deal. 
I mean, in her letter, they claim that she was excommunicated not because of her professional standards, but because she's torn down the church and criticized the leaders. But like, I watched the entire three hour like debriefing of her reaction to what went on. And one of her witnesses said that she went through hundreds hundreds like 400 or 900 i can't remember the exact number but hundreds of natasha's social media posts and calculated how many of them said negative things about the leaders she only mentioned the church leaders in like 10 of them and like or i think it was 11 and seven of those 11 posts were positive three were neutral and i think only one or two were critical mm-hmm. and she didn't even like <laughs> She didn't even get a disciplinary council. She showed up with her witnesses. Well, first of all, they only gave her a week to prepare and they were holding the council in a stake where she doesn't even live in. She moved to Utah and they insisted on having it in Kansas. And even though it was last minute, all these people showed up for her. She had witnesses, people that she doesn't even openly agree with, but people flew out from like states all across the country to help her. And two of her witnesses showed up And the requirement that Section 42 gives for disciplinary councils for witnesses is that they be members of the church in good standing, right? All of her witnesses were in good standing because that was the requirement. And these two women who were a couple of her main witnesses were like active temple recommend holders. They're like holding stake leadership in young women's and they're like really active in the church. And I say that as someone who does not like the word active, right? They showed up for Natasha to vouch for her and say what she's doing is not critical to church and what she's doing is really needed for healthy relationships and healthy mental health in the church. They asked the witnesses to come in one at a time. They wouldn't let those women go to the bathroom. The police showed up. Eventually, they wouldn't even let Natasha in to testify for herself, which is a huge mockery of what Section 42 talks about in disciplinary councils. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't let her in. Then they pretended like the disciplinary council didn't even happen. But then she ends up excommunicated anyway. So in answer to your question, do I think that the church does this now? No, it's a whole mess and it's not consistent at all with what is going on in section 42 about disciplinary proceedings. And I haven't even decided whether or not I agree with section 42, but the church doesn't even try to like adhere to its own scripture on this. (sighs) Sorry, that was a lot. Anyway. I mean, it was a lot that went on this week. It's heartbreaking to see what happened. Obviously, tensions were high, but Natasha said she felt very peaceful going in. She felt assurance and a calmness, and she was greeted at the door with people being very straightforward and not loving, and that just immediately things started going wrong from there. It's not that they were straightforward. They were like cold and brunt. Yeah, which is so hard at a disciplinary council. I know there's a lot of stake presidents that would come and, you know, be so loving and so gentle, but it's just horrifying that that was her experience. And it seems like that's been the experience of a lot of people who have been excommunicated by the church. Their lived experiences do not match up to what the church wants people to think about a meeting of love, right? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because we even see this in the scriptures that the love of men shall wax cold in the latter days, you know? And I... Mm -hmm. This might be radical, but I feel like this is exactly what it's talking about. This is what it was prophesying. 
Anyway, what I want our listeners and readers to take away from this is it's not just that healthy sexuality is not taught by the church. It's like actively reprimanded and pushed out by the church. The reason why this is an issue is because it affects consent. It affects reproductive education. And this is not just like, oh, abortion or anti-abortion. This is about like married couples and whether or not they want to conceive, whether or not they should conceive. It affects LGBTQ plus mental health because Natasha was teaching things that were helpful to LGBTQ plus people and ministering to them, right? Those are just a few things that this shows me from the way the church reacted. I don't know. I just think that what Natasha Helfer was doing in her clinical practice was an example of the radical love that Jesus had. And it just begs the question in my mind, at what point do we engage in radical service to enough people that the church considers us a threat and excommunicates us too. You know, it's ironic that the church bears Jesus Christ's name, but like hates people. And I say hate because of the way those men treated them at that council. Like if you watch that, it it was pretty clear that they had very negative feelings towards them. Um, hates the people who engage in the same radical love as Jesus Christ did. I worry that as we fight to become more Christ-like and more radically inclusive, like Jesus Christ was, that we and other vocal advocates slash critics who are trying to enact this monumental change in the church will become more disciplined and ostracized and excommunicated by the church. Yeah. So that's kind of our feelings right now. And I want our little community of holy human to be cognizant that a lot of people have lots of feelings about this and that you should take this as an opportunity to mourn with those that mourn. There's a lot of feelings this week about other things. There's a lot of examples for people to mourn with those that mourn. (sighs) Yeah. Black people have not gotten a break this week. Also, literally another black child was killed Micaiah Bryant. Yeah, right right after we found out about Derek Chauvin's verdict. So she was, what, 15 or 16? And she called the police for help and they shot her. Oh, I didn't expect to cry about this. Yeah, a lot of my friends who are Black who are very dear to me, I... I think it's just kind of like a numbing process at this point for some of them, just kind of disassociation because it just hurts to live in this world, you know, and to pay attention. James Baldwin, I think it was him who said to be black in America and to be aware, I'm paraphrasing, is to be like in a constant state of rage. I'm glad some of my friends are able to step back and take a break from social media at this time. And I hope that they do that, but like they shouldn't have to, you know, they should be able to engage fully in life without fear for their physical safety and their health. Anyway, (laughs) sorry. Mourn with those that mourn. That's my admonition. Okay. So going back to Disciplinary councils and justice retribution for offenders. It's interesting that it says if you offend many people, 
justice should come publicly. And in general, I agree with that. But I do think there's an element that could be weaponized against neurodivergent people because a lot of times we don't agree with or even understand what is inappropriate to neurotypical people. So a lot of times people in authority might want to discipline us just because we're being ourselves or we're saying things that people are getting offended by just because of arbitrary social norms. We should not be shamed just for being ourselves and group shame and group ostracization should not be weaponized. And actually, I did remember a really interesting thing that Tobin Sieber said in his first chapter in disability theory about groupthink and outsiders. And I'm going to read that really quick. Yeah, do it. So this chapter itself in the book is called Tender Organs, Narcissism and Identity Politics. And He's talking about narcissism in this, but I think it can be applied to all neurodivergent people. What Freud and the entire tradition surrounding narcissism miss, however, are the similarities between his description of group psychology and the history of collective violence. Narcissism is a collective accusation that isolates one member of a community as completely different from everyone else. Whether this difference represents excessive ability or excessive disability counts for little in the final analysis because negative and positive valences of difference shift suddenly whenever group psychology is involved. The only constraint is the fact that the community turns against one individual and holds special properties of that individual responsible for its own actions. In short, this is the logic. We killed him, but he made us do it. Mm. narcissism promotes a structure of blame where collective violence is concealed and victims are described as people divided against themselves narcissists bring themselves down and we know nothing and can know nothing about it a more sinister form of violence could not be imagined and i'm not sure if he means that like the violence against neurodivergent people is sinister or if he means in neurotypical people's minds they consider that kind of violence really sinister but yeah I just we see this I think that's why that's why like sometimes reality shows like really bother me I think they're fascinating right but group dynamics really like ooh, they're scary to me because I always have identified with like the weirdo (laughs) You know, and inevitably when you have all these people that are in high stakes and they're all competing against one another, or at least they're like all fighting for survival, it does happen the way Tobin Sieber says that they find one person and they exclude them based on like outside factors, you know, they find Mm -hmm. some reason that makes them like evil and then they engage in violence against that individual And then say, well, we had to, we had to for the protection of ourselves. He made us do it, right? He provoked us. Yeah, like herd mentality. Yeah, Yeah. that herd mentality is really scary. And we see this against neurodivergent people. And especially going back to what we were talking about earlier, we see this in violence against Black people in America, especially when because of intersecting marginalizations, there aren't enough resources for many people to get like mental health help. And a lot of times when 
black people call the cops, it ends up being more dangerous, but they needed some sort of mental health help or some sort of like intervention, you know, like the statistics, the intersection between neurodivergent people and black people who are killed by the cops are atrociously high. And to be black in America is a scary thing when you have white supremacy embedded in all these systems and to be neurodivergent in America is a scary thing, but to be both, it's just, it's, it's horrifying. And no wonder people disassociate. Anyway, what scripture was I talking about? Ah, (laughs) Um, yeah. Section 42, right at the end, is it 89 through 93? Yeah. So that's why I think we should take those verses with a grain of salt about handling it publicly. I think it's good to be informed by it, but I really, really don't want people to think that this is a license to dehumanize other people just because they're different from them. Yeah. What did you want to say about section 42? Go. Oh, yes. Okay. So story time. In episode 11, Gethsemane, Disability and Accountability, I shared a story that I had on my mission of this woman that I didn't know who wasn't a member of our faith who approached me in public and asked to heal me. And it scared me and I had all these feelings and I didn't know how to work through them. And at the end of my mission, I asked my mission president and another missionary to give me a priesthood blessing and to heal me. And in the blessing, they asked God for the process of healing to begin now And at the end of the blessing, they reminded me, yes, do you have the faith to be healed is a thing, but do you have the faith to not be healed? And we kind of talked about that and, oh, it's a hard conversation, but it's an important conversation to understand the dynamic of our mortal life and the things that come in that we don't want to come in at times. At that time, I didn't want my disability. Anyway, when I was on that journey of trying to understand if I could be healed from my disability and what that would look like. Where do I read in my scriptures but Doctrine and Covenants 42? And oh my gosh, like this is what really set me down a path of like, oh my gosh, even though my disability seems really permanent, I could be healed. This could happen. Let me just read this for people who don't have their scriptures nearby. Doctrine and Covenants, it's section 42. There's verses 43 through 44 and then 48 through 52. There's kind of two chunks where it talks about healing. I'm going to kind of focus on verses 48 to 52. 48 is, and again, it shall come to pass that he that hath faith in me to be healed and is not appointed unto death shall be healed. 49 says, he who hath faith to see shall see. He who hath faith to hear shall hear. The lame who hath faith to leap shall leap. And of course I read that and I was like, that's me. I can be healed. And it was just a huge emotional moment. And I was just kind of shocked at the reality of miracles and the reality of faith. Fast forward to what I've already shared in episode 11 about trying to be healed and getting that priesthood blessing. Now I would like to share what I wish I knew when I read this scripture. So this scripture, it's actually quoted in two different general conference talks. One of them was given in November 2002 by Lance B. Wickham, a member of the 70. The other was given actually by Dallin A. Jokes in 2010. Both of them reference this scripture and kind of give more information with the scripture that's not shared explicitly in the actual Doctrine and Covenants section 42. So Lance B. Wickham says, 
But the Lord has not left us comfortless or without any answers. As to the healing of the sick, he has clearly said, quoting Doctrine and Covenants 42, 48, He that hath faith in me to be healed and is not appointed unto death shall be healed. All too often we overlook the qualifying phrase, and is not appointed to death. And he writes, or we might add, unto sickness or handicap. And right when I read that, I was like, oh, oh no. Like we had this whole discussion on our Instagram with people about comparing death to disability. And yep. there was really good discussion on how that can be a really bad comparison, but it can also be a comparison where we can learn a lot about what death is and yes. how death affects our journey in the plan of salvation and how it is a disabling event. There's a lot of different opinions on it and that idea is brought in into this section. So he continues, please do not despair when fervent prayers have been offered and priesthood blessings performed and your loved one makes no improvement or even passes from mortality. Take comfort in the knowledge that you did everything you could. Such faith and fasting and blessings could not be in vain. That your child did not recover in spite of all that was done in his behalf can and should be the basis for peace and reassurance to all those who love him. The Lord, who inspires the blessings and who hears every earnest prayer, called him home nonetheless. How then should we approach the throne of grace as we plead earnestly for a loved one and place hands upon her head to give a blessing by priesthood authority? How do we properly exercise our faith? The prophet Joseph Smith defined that first principle of the gospel as faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that defining phrase in the Lord Jesus Christ that we sometimes forget. Too often we offer our prayer or perform our administration and then nervously wait to see whether our request will be granted, as though approval would provide needed evidence of his existence. That is not faith. Faith is, quite simply, a confidence in the Lord. In Mormon's words, it is a firm mind in every form of godliness. I have a lot of feelings with this idea. First is with how confusing and life affecting this section of scripture can be if you don't understand or don't see that qualifying phrase and is not appointed unto death. It's upsetting to me to see this just totally skipped over in the come follow me. Yeah, Come follow me doesn't mention this set of scriptures at all, except to say that section 42 is really important and we can learn a lot, but it doesn't say any information about it. And you have to like dig around and find out like, yeah. what the heck does this mean for me? You know, that breaks my heart. Oh, that's where I wanted to jump to. Dallin H. Oaks' talk. He quotes the scripture and then he goes on to tell the story of this family who loses a teenage daughter. She was sick for a long time in the hospital, a serious illness. And they fasted. They put her name on the temple prayer roll. They did priesthood blessings, hundreds of prayers. The whole family was in on it. They were pleading with the Lord to save her life. And she ended up passing away. And he quotes his cousin who was around this family. It says... Our family's faith is in Jesus Christ and is not dependent on outcomes. And again, we get into like a hardcore place in the gospel where it's not an answer that you're just like, oh, 
Yes, that's what I wanted to hear. That brings me such great peace. But I really loved this. Our family's faith is in Jesus Christ and not dependent on outcomes. Dallin H. Oak said, those teachings ring true to me. We do all that we can for the healing of a loved one. And then we trust in the Lord for the outcome. When you do everything you can for your own health, for the goodness of your body and for others, I just wanted to say, don't kick yourself around for the outcomes. If you still are sick, don't feel guilty about it. If you still need help and feel interdependent in your life, that's not a bad thing. That doesn't make you a burden. That makes you a human. And every human has that in some capacity in their life. Anyway, this section went from heartbreaking to a little bit relieving for me. What are your thoughts? That was a lot that I just shared. (laughs) So you're saying it went from heartbreaking because of your experience before to relieving now. Yeah. I used to look at the scripture like I tried my best to believe it so hard and have faith in it, but it just came back and like stabbed me in the back, like that it didn't Mm -hmm. end up happening for me. Yeah. And in this scripture, when I didn't even pay attention to that caveat and is not appointed unto death, when I read it, I believe the reason why I didn't even think about it is because I'm like, well, I'm not going to die. Like, the, like yeah. it didn't seem like it applied to me because I'm not on my deathbed with my disability. I'm existing and I'm living and I'm on my mission at the time, you know? Like I totally mm-hmm. skipped over that and just read it as he that hath faith in me to be healed, he shall be healed. But now I feel more resolved. I feel like I have a better understanding of what is meant by this. And kind of like how you mentioned before, how we can put our own struggles in place of struggles that people have in the scriptures. Yeah, People could read this and say, he that hath faith in me to be healed and is not appointed unto this trial shall be healed. Whatever healed Mm -hmm. means according to whatever trial we're going through. I'm really glad that you found that clause. I think that's really important. I don't think it completely mitigates or makes up for all the other instances, even just in this section where it kind of uses faith as a sufficient requirement to be healed. Because we talked before about mixing up sufficient requirements and necessary requirements to be healed. And I don't want to get into that again. I just want to say that we need to do a better job in the church of teaching our children the difference between these two things, because you're not a bad person for misinterpreting it and then getting heartbroken. You know, I am a very logical person. And so sometimes when I like analyze something logically and other people like skip over aspects of logic, I think I can be kind of condescending and I'm working on that. But your story reminded me the scriptures are not very clear (laughs) and they're very convoluted. And even when you like have a good grasp on like logic and principles, sometimes they're just back and forth and they mix their metaphors and, and it can be really hard to not interpret it in a way that is harmful to yourself. You know, Mm -hmm. it can be really hard to understand and make sense of what, not just what is being said, but make sense of what should have been said, what was not said. What's implied and not implied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that's that's a massive undertaking. And I there really is like 
an education gap there. I think I'm privileged in the sense that my autistic brain naturally like analyzes these things. Hmm. Like pretend the scripture is like a ball of yarn and it's all tangled. I enjoy unraveling it. I enjoy untangling it, you know? But for other people, that's really tiring. No judgment there. Like we each have the things that we enjoy and like the brain that I have, I don't know how I would react to the scriptures. I think I would be a lot more heartbroken than I am now, which is saying something (laughs) considering like how much I have been disappointed by like misplaced faith. And I also remember a time where I thought I was going to be healed. I I didn't share this yet, but uh, in, in one of the letters that I wrote to the missionary department, well, I guess So I addressed it to the first presidency, but who knows if they even read it. But in that letter, I like talked about this experience I had about who would have been my mission president if I had been allowed out of the MTC because I was early medically released, like going to his homecoming and like being overwhelmed by emotion and by the spirit, but my legs didn't collapse. And this shows that I can be healed because God wants me to go on a mission, you know, like, reading that like recently I was like oh my gosh like poor little Serena I was so eager and confident and faithful and like devoted and yet nothing came out of it you know and that's that's really sad whenever that happens And that's not saying that I was stupid or evil or bad for having that misplaced devotion. I think we can admire devotion, but also like be sad when it's misplaced, you know? Yeah. I I appreciate the clarification that was given in those talks that say that it can be applied to disability and sickness and things as well. But yeah, I really wish that that was talked about and come follow me, like I said. Yeah, it needs to be talked about and come follow me. And it needs to be talked about and in seminary and in families. Like it needs to be uh, just really passionate about the fact that we like mm, the more time that goes on and the more like involved we get with this podcast and like with other podcasts, the more like I anguish because there's such like an educational gap, you know, and we're just with our podcast, not just with ours, but like all these other come follow me and LDS oriented podcasts. We are the ones who are like going in deep where the church has failed us in education, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and it's not saying that those individual people like our individual Sunday school teachers or our individual like seminary teachers or young women's leaders or young men's leaders that they were trying to keep information from us. Like most of them were probably ignorant too, because they're raised in the same system. Like the system does not teach us all these different LDS adjacent podcasts are trying so hard to make up for that education gap with disability, with talking about BIPOC individuals and race-related issues, with LGBTQ issues, with women's issues, you know, like the issues in other countries and imperialism and like uh, neocolonialism in third world countries and like how the church is sometimes the most consistent thing in people's lives that have been colonialized over and over and over again by white people. The church should do better because it has such a huge reach. If it's really committed to like improving the lives of its members, then make it more helpful. It needs to be considered more like yeah. when I read this and I'm like, how is that not said specifically in Come Follow Me? Part of me is like, well, I mean, Katie, you're not the only person in the world. Like, don't be selfish. You know, you had to find this and it's not a big deal. But I'm like, okay, think about 
how many disabled people there are in the church. There should be, it mm-hmm. should be about a fourth or a fifth, uh, depending on the demographics that you look at. That's what it should be in the United States at least. Think about all the women in the church. Think about all the people of color in the church, LGBTQ people, like, Mm -hmm. and then, like you said, outside of the United States, like all these things, they have an impact when you don't talk about them. And when people find scriptures like this on their own and they're confused and, you know, they have trouble finding the meaning in it, they feel discouraged. They feel left out and othered and it is important. Well, we harped on that quite a bit, but I think it was important. One little thing that you mentioned is you talked about the death metaphor and how we had this discussion on our Instagram about it. Actually, verse 17 in section 45 says, For as ye have looked upon the long absence of your spirits from your bodies to be a bondage, I will show unto you how the day of redemption shall come and also the restoration of the scattered Israel. So this is Jesus saying death is a disabling event, you know, like we were talking about like just another instance of like us making connections that are then like verified in the scriptures. And that makes me really happy. And also, let me just say really quick, my biggest problem with section 45 is the way it was taught in the come follow me manual it makes it seem like the church and the members of the church are exempt from wickedness you know it talks about all these like horrible things that are going to happen before the millennium i just know that people use this as the whole like shtick that oh we just need to be strong even though the world is so wicked blah 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 but like I'm not going to go much into that, but despite that, there are a couple things that I really enjoyed about it. Like that thing in verse 17 that I just mentioned also verses 14 and 16 are other good instances of like the flesh and the body being used in a positive way, which I really loved. Verse 14 is talking about Enoch and his brethren in the previous verses. Oh, the men in days of old in verse 10, that's who they are saying that they obtained a promise that they should find it and see it in their flesh, which just reiterates how important like your body is to your identity and how important it was that they see it in their own bodies, you know, the city of Enoch. And then in verse 16, Jesus says, I will show prophecy plainly as I showed it unto my disciples, as I stood before them in the flesh and spake unto them saying, as ye have asked me concerning the signs of my coming, et cetera, et cetera. Point is, I will show it plainly as I showed it unto my disciples, as I stood before them in the flesh. Like, I just love the fact that Jesus is emphasizing here that he stood in front of his disciples in his own body as he preached about prophecy and the second coming, etc. At first glance, it seems kind of like irrelevant, but to Jesus, it was relevant. And he brought it up even when other humans, mortals would just kind of skip over that fact. Like they would just kind of brush it away because, you know, these prophecies are much more interesting. But to Jesus, it was important enough that he was like, yeah, I stood there in my body, in my flesh talking, you know, anyway, I love that. Verse 52, he talks about his body and his wounds too. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Ah! That one is so good. Okay, I loved that. Yeah, verses 51 through 53, the Jews are asking, well, should we read it? Yeah, I can read it. 
And then shall the Jews look upon me and say, What are these wounds in thine hands and in thy feet? Then shall they know that I am the Lord, for I will say unto them, These wounds are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And I am he who was lifted up. I am Jesus Christ that was crucified. I am the Son of God. And then shall they weep because of their iniquities. And then shall they lament because they persecuted their king. So with this, I don't want to hate on the Jews because we are anti-anti-Semitic here. (laughs) I want to use this as an example of something we see nowadays in our own little Mormon lives, right? Like how often do we see people wounding us, marginalized people, and then them not noticing that they wounded us until it's too late or until they're brought to some sort of like major event. With George Floyd, all of a sudden, all the white people, including me as a white passing Asian American, I knew that there was some sort of aspect to anti-blackness that I hadn't really processed yet, but I didn't feel like I needed to process it. And I was complicit in that sense, right? And then being sorrowful after the fact. It's just really interesting. I think that we can kind of see that same thing in this scripture as happening in these days of people being complicit in ignorance and bigotry. Wow. Wow. I love the way that you read this. I I only (laughs) looked at 52 and I was like, oh, Jesus Christ is talking about his wounds. And I love that. But I didn't look at it in the big picture and apply it to us, how people show us their metaphorical wounds and Mm -hmm, say, look at mm -hmm. what you did to me. And then if you really realize it, if you really understand, then these people, when they saw Christ's wounds, they wept because of their iniquities and they lament because they persecuted their king. Uh, Mm -hmm. We need to be a lot better about that in the church, outside of the church as humans. We need to see Mm -hmm. the effects that we have on marginalized people and do restorative work to make up for it not just be like oh sorry and then move on oh my gosh do you see what we've done to people and like can you imagine our reaction and when I say our I mean like the mainstream white American members of the church if in Jesus second coming he turns out to be a black queer disabled man you know like (laughs) He turns out to be autistic, neurodivergent, all of these things which are in positions of marginalization in the church. And yet there are, like James and Derek have found examples of scriptures that show that, you know, he could be queer. He could, well, he definitely was not white. Like that's, that's not a could, that is, that is an is, okay. And the kind of like, <laughs> come to Jesus moment. <laughs> Did you get it? <laughs> Oh my gosh. You're turning into Derek with his jokes that he shares on Beyond the Block. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Can you imagine the, the, that? Okay, I'll stop laughing. That moment of realization and accountability where they're like, oh crap. Like I've been screwing Jesus's people over this whole time. And then also last thing I'll say about this verse Section 45, verse 52 says, these wounds are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. (sighs) This just reminds me of all the times that I, as an autistic person growing up and as an adult even, thought like people were my friends when really they just like considered me 
someone entertaining or a neighbor or a roommate. I thought we were friends, but because I, I I don't know, I still don't really know what are the markers that neurotypical people give off when they're actually committed to the friendship, because it's so hard for me to feel like neurotypical people are committed to friendships, you know? I took them seriously, you know, I took their promises literally, which brings us all the way back up to section 41, where we talk about casting people out who like make promises that they don't mean, but really those people weren't my friends. You know why? Because they didn't see me for who I really was. They didn't. And because they didn't see me for who who I really was, they weren't able to appreciate all that I am. We can also look at Jesus's rejection from his own people as a parable for neurodivergent and disabled people being rejected on the hands of our families and the people that we thought we were friends. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Especially with this last year, if you think about how (laughs) simple the things that we had to do for the coronavirus were, like once they gave us the best guidance they could, wear a mask, social distance, stay at home when you can, work from home when you can, There were so many people unwilling to do that because they didn't care. And I know there were a lot of disabled people online that were super upset about it, rightfully so. All these people that claim to be allies or are friends or family don't give a crap at the slightest inconvenience when it's literally a disabled person's life we're talking about because there are a lot of disabled people that were so vulnerable to the virus. And Hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. In the United States, it's past half a million. And worldwide, it's 5 million and counting. And we just, when it doesn't affect their own little bubble, who cares? You know, oh, it's horrifying. Yes. And you can also see it as that moment last year where a lot of Black and people of color ask the people that they loved to show up for them in this huge moment of accountability against racism. And a lot of those white people around these people of color, Black people specifically, turned out to like be fake, you know, or at least maybe they were real friends and they just decided it wasn't worth it, not worth their time to actually like do the things that the friendship needed. Yeah. Not even to mention LGBTQ in the church. You yeah. grow up in a church and you believe it and you love the people that you connect with and you feel like you're at home and then you come out and then too frequently, most of the time, almost all the time, you're rejected and yeah, people turn away from you and those friendships and the love that you found before disappears. And I... I'm not LGBTQ, but I try my best to make a safe space and to make it very clear that that's not going to happen if you come to me. Oh my gosh, I love this scripture so much based on all the things that you're revealing out of it. It's very poignant. Yeah, I'll just say this really quick. I don't want to diminish that moment of intense emotion that you 
bringing that up brought. I just want to say that for me with my cataplexy, that's kind of the way I see it with what you were talking about, like them showing the wounds, you know, people can't be accountable for the things that they've done. If the wounds of the people they've harmed are not shown by my cataplexy physically affecting me when people say harmful things to me, that's my disability taking another step towards accountability for them, you know, because they can see how they're wounding me and it makes them even more accountable when they turn away. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Instagram at holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. You can find us on Facebook at Holy Human Podcast. Our email is at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. And our Patreon is patreon.com slash holyhuman. We will be announcing some exciting things related to our Patreon soon. So make sure you keep an eye on us and engage with us so that you can find out about that. We also want to thank Matif for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. Endless gratitude for your support, our friends. We'll engage with you next time.